This is not your grandma's Bible study. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> All right, welcome to the four-person quartet, which is how many people are in a quartet. Yes, that's correct. Welcome to the Redundancy Podcast. Uh, uh, this is not your grandma's Bible study. I'm not your grandma. I'm no, Jill. I'm also not your grandma, and I'm Zach. Um, so today we're going to do something a little different, change pace a little bit, as opposed to a deep dive into a text or a person. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the concept of inerrancy mm-hmm. um, and infallibility of the Bible. So... Um, yeah, this should be fun. It'll be a little bit more casual of a conversation. Neither one of us is really leading per se. Um, so, yeah. So, what was kind of the understanding of, infall- of infallibility or inerrancy that you were raised with? How does how was that talked about in your traditions growing up? I don't think they ever actually said the words inerrancy or infallibility. And if they did, I don't remember it now. But uh, I do remember people talking about how uh, the word of God is true or always true. Um, obviously, lots of references to Second Timothy. Um, so I think all the pieces were there. And I think I implicitly understood that it was inerrant and infallible and I regretfully got into Wayne Grudem in high school. Um, I don't know who that is. That's probably for the best. (laughs) Uh, But uh, no, systematic theologian, super evangelical. Uh, Yeah, don't have to get into it now. But um, So I I think I had the language for that later in high school, Mm -hmm. but I think growing up, I don't think we ever talked about inerrancy, or at least it wasn't wasn't necessarily something that was a cornerstone of what we were believing or – something that we needed to reinforce constantly. Yeah. My tradition, um, I don't remember when I first started hearing, but I, there was a lot of talk about, you know, the inerrant word of God. Um, mm. So this notion that nothing in the Bible can be wrong or um, incorrect or factually untrue. Um, a sort of this notion that there's a there's a plain sense of the text, a plain reading, like right, that right. this common reading that literally everybody should get to if they would just <laughs> live their lives with the exact same experiences that whoever was reading had. No, um, so there was sort of this notion that there's like there is there is one correct reading of texts, mm-hmm. um, and usually the person preaching is the person who had that correct reading, and if you didn't agree. Um, then you were misreading the Bible um, because that was the plain, plain sense of it. And so some complicated um, power moves for some people. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, will, I, I don't want to accuse everybody who believes in, iner- like, in this like, staunch inerrancy. Because um, I think when pushed, some people, they'll, they'll, give, they'll give a little. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But some that are very staunch, I think that's more of a power move than it is mm-hmm. um, a faith move, if you will. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the person trying to be faithful to what they believe is true of the Bible mm-hmm. more than it is they want. There's there's power behind it. You know, pastoring a church is a powerful position, and not everybody is. Uh, not everybody who's in that position should be. Um, some of them abuse that power. Um, mm-hmm. Even being, you know a traveling minister in different ways. There are lots of ways that people abuse that power, and one of the ways that they can do that is by making their reading of the text the reading of the text. Right, right. And so um, 
So there's there's room for abuse whenever it's it's unnuanced and uncritical and mm-hmm. thinking about what do we mean by inerrancy and fallibility, um, and and how do we how do we need to think about that? So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. So I was thinking. So what we're wanting to do. Um, for those of you who didn't have the conversation with Zach and I before we <laughs> you weren't there Zachary before we started recording, um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, several aspects that are kind of related to this and how um, our scholarly pursuits have reshaped how we think about inerrancy and infallibility, um, and um, recognizing that at least for me, and I think you you, you said as well that. I've never taken a class on the inerrancy of the Bible. Like that's no. never that's not a topic that comes up in academic coursework around um, reading the Bible. But the kinds of things that do are textual traditions, um, processes of canonizing um, the Bible, which texts got chosen um, to be in the New Testament, for instance, mm-hmm. and why they got chosen and when they got chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all some really critical kind of elements to it. And so. Um, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and maybe some some final thoughts. Um, so, so yeah, what do, what would you like to talk about Hebrew Bible wise? Hebrew Bible, um, a little bit. HB, are you with me? <laughs> HB. Uh, I think one of the things in terms of like how I've changed, and so I think I I would describe myself as being or having been inerrantist in some way. Uh, I, I, I think that's probably the way to talk about it. Um, an infallibilist. Um, because I think I really did, uh, not because of power, but because of security. And I think a lot of people, so mm. if it's not rooted in power, it's probably rooted in security, that people want to uh, have a certain degree of certainty that what they're believing is true. And inerrancy is an easy way yeah. to get there. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't want to say easy, but it's the probably main mode of, of how that's, hap- that's happening today and has happened recently. Um, but I think the thing also for me is I really wasn't exposed to a lot of other ways of thinking about it. So when I became a PhD student and started reading through things, uh, especially with Hebrew Bible scholarship and starting to wade through archaeological excavation records of certain places. And uh, so that starts to, you know, that asks questions of those beliefs that you have. And I think that started to shift it further down the line away from being inerrant, or at least in the way that inerrancy is typically defined yeah. as being without error in the original manuscript. But, you know, now we have these traditions which replicate and are you know really accurate representations of the original manuscript and uh yeah i so i think uh jericho i always go back to jericho number one conversation about hebrew bible scholarship (laughs) with archaeology is always uh joshua you know so let's look at the what joshua says happens and then let's look at you know what some of the archaeological record is and Short story is it doesn't really match up that yeah. well. There's a couple things that do, but most of it doesn't. And Jericho is kind of the really big known one about that, that Jericho by archaeological records versus the dating that you can get from just, you know, piecing it together in the texts. Uh, Jericho's gone long before any possible people would have come into the area to sack it and destroy it and stuff. So Interesting. Uh, it's... It's just you can't you can't get there you can't yeah. get there so and that, then that raises mm-hmm. big questions not just of like because I don't think that hearing that for anybody who this is news to you um, 
it's news to me. I'm not. It's not troubling to me. But for some people, that might be troubling to find out that sure. mm-hmm. you know this text says something happened, but the archaeological evidence doesn't support that in any way. Yeah. Um, which do you trust? And it's. Uh, I think that the better questions to go to with these kinds of situations in these texts that you, you is then what's the point of it? Like yeah. the, there's a there's a larger point of it than mm-hmm. just fact recounting. Exactly. Um, there are bigger questions. And so when I taught the class um, at TCU, I taught an intro to Bible class um, in theory and, and specifically with some of the Hebrew Bible texts. The questions that I, I told these students to, to think about when they're reading this isn't so much like, did it happen? But right. more like, what is this supposed to teach me about God? What is this supposed to teach me about humanity, Mm -hmm. the relationship between God Mm -hmm. and humanity, between humans and humans, um, that the moral lesson of it doesn't have to be lost because the factualness of it doesn't, didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and so some people are uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's, I don't think there's any reason to be so just be reassured that it doesn't have to be troubling, um, to hear that necessarily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, uh, I think there's a real tendency among some folks to conflate inerrancy with historicity mm-hmm. and all of that being under the umbrella of what we might call truth. And I think all of that gets balled up into something that's really not recognizable or helpful when you're yeah. trying to look at these texts. I mean, other outliers, you know, depending on how literal you view the text, you might believe Moses wrote the first five books yeah. of the Bible. And if you read any sort of scholarship, that is widely uh, refused and yeah. denied uh, because of the dating and because of the way that we can look at texts and where it shows up and the way in which the Hebrew is written and everything else, we can look at it and say, no, it probably wasn't from that time. It was probably later, which means even if maybe Moses wrote an early draft of it, what we have today mm-hmm. wasn't Moses, it was somebody else. Yeah. Um, so all these little things together, you know, you talked about beforehand with the book of Esther, mm-hmm. um, you can look at Jonah, you can look at Job. All these books are very, like, they are set in a time period, but there's no anchor. And so anchor is a word we use in scholarship for something outside the Bible that kind of verifies that this event took place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just the text saying it happened, it's we can go to somewhere in Babylon and find, you know, a text or some sort of writing on the wall, literally, that says, you know, this happened in this year under this king. Um, so a lot of these texts don't have anchors. We don't have any sort yeah. of record of any of these people, or at least none of the things happening that say that they happen. And so, yeah, going back to what you said, like a lot of it is reframing the question of what is meaningful, what is truth, and why why are these texts important to mm-hmm. me if they're not an exact historical record and verification of what it is. And yeah, that's a big question um, to ask if you've never <laughs> sat down and asked that to yourself before. Yeah. I I had a professor in undergraduate who kind of framed the difference between like truth and uh, fact, truth and honesty and truth mm, and fact. Mm-hmm. This way it's it's very gendered and maybe a bit stereotypical, but I think it takes takes the point home. Sure. Um, so he had imagined the scenario of these two, you know, the six year old uh, married couple, man and woman, and the woman asks the husband one night before bed, "Am I still beautiful?" And he was like, "Maybe the honest answer is." No, mm. maybe the honest answer is you've got <laughs> 
some things have fallen apart. Maybe yeah. you've let yourself go. He's like, but the truthful answer is yes. The truthful answer is you are still beautiful. I mm-hmm. still choose you. I mm-hmm. still, mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this difference between fact and truth, historicity and truth, I think for me, that was a really helpful way to, to think about how you can have two answers to the same question mm-hmm. and one of them be honest yeah. and fact and one of them be true. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, And yeah. so maybe the same way, you know, if you have, you know, in our society sort of, um, you know, we think of, we don't want our children growing up with poor self-esteem or something like that. And so the things that we tell our children, you know, you're so strong. You, you I mean, you're six. You're not that strong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like the way that we, the way that we tell the truth to like to build people up and to, mm. to bring, I don't know. I don't know. I'm rambling at this point, sure. but that was really helpful for me. And one of the exercises that I did around the historicity piece and how to think about historical text. I'm using air quotes here. Um, because historical texts are always a choice. Yes. Um, what gets passed down? Whose history is it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why is that the history that gets told? And why isn't somebody else's history told? Mm-hmm. Um, and also history is almost always exclusively told by the victor. Yep. Um, and so that colors the way the picture is painted. So I had one of my students tell me, I was like, just tell me about your morning, like the things that you did, uh, things that you thought about. There's a lot of food-related stuff. Um, <laughs> Um, studied for a test, went to class, worked out. Um, and I was like, okay. I was like, so, you know, a thousand years from now, somebody's studying the records that are left over from Fort Worth 2017 at the time. It's like, they see yours for the day. They see all that. But then all, and that's the only thing that they have firsthand from a student left over. But all, they have all this other evidence <laughs> that's firsthand that says, TC, you really cared about football. Mm. And yet you didn't say anything about football. Interesting. But everything else they have is football, football, football. So how do you reconcile that? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good, like, for that class that was, like, eye-opening of, like, yeah, the student, he wrote his history for that day, and it didn't include any of the things that history, big H, might care about. Exactly. Um, So people's history versus, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know, little H history versus big H history, Mm -hmm. so... Uh, anyway, I keep getting off on tangents. Dif- diff- different uh, histories. No, that's, yeah. that's super helpful. Um, one of the other major things I wanted to talk about regarding inerrancy, um, and this is kind of a tangent to this, but it's related, and I think a lot of people maybe no- don't know this, but um, most people know, at least I, I really hope you know, that the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in <laughs> yes. other, other languages. So it's not just English. It was Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, and then we've got Greek in the New Testament. But um, we don't have the manuscript traditions, the way that they work, in terms of maybe we'll talk about the most complete versions of what we have of those things, are not as close to when they were written as we'd like them to mm-hmm. be. Um, I know for New Testament, it's a lot closer Um I am not up on when Sinaiticus and Vaticanus were, I think, 300-something? 300s or 400s, yeah. Pretty early, but, I mean, we're talking... Early-ish, but still not the first... Hundreds of years after Jesus was, you know, walking around, apparently. Um, But, you know, so it gets even worse for Hebrew Bible, though, because the most complete, like, not really missing anything is Leningrad Codex, and that was 1,000 CE. It's Hmm. 1,008, 1,009. Um... Aleppo is earlier by like 
50 years or 60 years, but, uh, or no, it's maybe more like 80 years. It's like 900 something, but that's incomplete. So our most complete versions of the Hebrew Bible that we have yeah. are over... Of what we decided, is, or oh, yeah. what has been decided is the Hebrew Bible today, yes. the Old Testament text. Yes. Uh, that stuff is at least a thousand years from the BCE, CE, or if you're, you know, BC, AD changeover. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a long time. We have nothing, the, the closest we have actually are Dead Sea Scrolls, which do confirm a lot of those readings. That mm -hmm. was why the scrolls were such a huge find because they actually filled in some missing pieces for us yeah. um, as scholars because we, And, and yeah. showed that some of these texts were pretty set. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then some of them were still... In flux. In flux of taking in their final shape. And I think that's really important is that we've got documents, you know, here and there mm -hmm. um, of Jeremiah. Yep. So, and then we've got this text of Jeremiah that's found at the Dead Sea Scrolls yep. documents. That's why it's not even the same document mm -hmm. almost. Um, and so it just, it shows that this, this discomfort kind of that we have in mm -hmm. our, in our day and age of, you know, these texts are untouchable is that is not nope. historically the way that these texts were thought mm -hmm. about. They were, they could be updated. They could mm -hmm. be made more relevant. They could be totally dismissed. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think it's interesting in the scrolls, isn't it? Esther is the only Hebrew Bible book that's not represented even yeah. In, yeah. in part, mm -hmm. which could just be a, an accident of history. Yeah. Because um, a lot of the texts that are represented, it's fragments of yeah, them. Yeah, we don't have. So it could just be that texts. she, yeah. um, her text didn't didn't survive the desert um but i mean the fact that almost all of the hebrew bible texts are represented there is another indication that those texts were authoritative at the time mm -hmm. and so that might lend some people to be like see they've always been authoritative but they were also found alongside a whole slew of texts that none of y'all have read <laughs> <laughs> that i have in my library that i haven't read yeah, um, yeah. you know a lot of sectarian texts mm -hmm. as they're called that are that were authoritative for a very particular community mm -hmm. around their rules. And that if those communities had been the ones that had rose to power to pass on their traditions, I mean, the community rule might be in your Bible today mm -hmm. if, mm -hmm. you know, the, the folks living at the Qumran site had, had survived and mm -hmm. expanded their, their footprint. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's important to note, too, that mm -hmm. this discomfort is, is new, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, building on what you said, that I think it's important to keep in mind that these texts have been traveling a long time through time, and they haven't looked the same at any point, really. So you're telling me they're the doctor? Uh, maybe, maybe. They, they don't <laughs> Mystery have... is solved. The Bible is Doctor Who. <laughs> Doctor Who. The, the Bible is Doctor Who. Thanks for joining us this week. Um, and that's been our <laughs> podcast, not your Doctor Who's Bible study. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's it's just uh, inerrancy <laughs> locks down the conversation on the Bible in a way that doesn't help you. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't. It actually puts constraints. Uh, infer infallibility and inerrancy put constraints on thinking about the Bible in a way that really hamper any mm -hmm. uh, meaningful discussion on what's there. Yeah. And I think that's uh, not talked about maybe as much in some scholarly circles yeah. as it should be. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the quick and fast overview of Hebrew Bibles and inerrancy take. So we'll talk a little bit about New Testament as well. And some of this will, there'll be, there'll be overlaps, mm -hmm. um, obviously, but 
So the New Testament, one of the things that I find really interesting about it, so it's obviously fewer texts, um, and there's more information around how these texts came to become authoritative um, that we don't really have. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is missing um, in the Hebrew Bible. We've got some things that you can reconstruct and think about, but with the New Testament, I mean, we have documents of debates around, you know, so-and-so's reading the Bible this way, and we don't like that. Um, and so some, I mean, some have argued that the formation of the New Testament canon um at all is really in response to heretical quote unquote mm-hmm. readings or interpretations. Um, Marcion, for instance, was accused of butchering the book of Luke to make it say what Marcion wanted to say. <laughs> Scholars now seem to think that Marcion probably just had a different version yeah. of Luke yeah, yeah. altogether. Um, and so maybe, so some of the, the rhetoric was precisely that rhetoric. It was yeah. it was intended to really denigrate them. Um, it's also important to note that some of these early, you know, uh, church fathers, if you will, I think Tertullian, he didn't really want people reading the Bible because he knew that they could make it say what they wanted. And so he <laughs> didn't think he wanted the creeds. Like that's yeah, what people yeah, needed yeah. to know. And that's what became sort of inerrant and the focal point, if you will, maybe not inerrant, but like that was the focal point where these creeds, because if people read the Bible, they might do what Marcion did. Right. Uh, you know, Can't just do cut that. out some stuff and make it say what you want it to say. Um, and I think that's really interesting because we kind of have this this notion in our, um, at least in the Western world of sort of, you know, free access. I mean, everybody's got 14 Bibles at home. Yeah, you know, there's one yeah. in every hotel room you go to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think that's really interesting that there was a time when, you know, the church fathers, the pastors, <laughs> the people who were in charge of spiritual guidance were like, maybe you shouldn't read it. Uh, maybe... <laughs> Because I don't like what you might have it say. Which yeah. for, for I think it was Tertullian. So anybody who's a patristic. patristic scholar can correct me on that. But, I mean, whoever it was, that's a power move. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. going to control mm-hmm. the narrative. Um, and we're going to control it by not letting you read it. Um, so, um, so there's a lot of debate that we can see happening that's coming towards the the decisions about which books are going to be made in. So um, so we've got several stages in this process. Um, Dr. Car- Warren Carter has a book called The Seven Events That Shape the New Testament World. It's a short read. It's really accessible, but the last chapter of it is he uh, is about the process of closing mm-hmm. the New Testament canon um, that happens uh, in 397, more or less. And so he's, you know, the first stage in this process, obviously, is writing. Right. These documents get written down, and then they get used. And so um, these New Testament texts being used for early churches, they have these early Christian groups and communities where they have meaning, and they're, they keep getting circulated because there's useful things in them. So they, there were lots of, I mean, we don't even have all of Paul's letters. That's a well-known mm-hmm, fact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there were, they think, four letters at least written to the Corinthians, and we have two and a half. <laughs> I think second Corinthians, I think parts of third Corinthians, if you will, is, is tucked into that. Um, but what that indicates is that even some of the stuff that Paul wrote wasn't found to be useful enough to be kept around. Yeah. Um, and so 
then they start coming around in collections. So Paul's letters start getting collected and circulating together. The Gospels start getting collected and circulated together. Um, Tatian writes the Diatessaron because he's really uncomfortable with four different versions of Jesus' story. It's too many. It's too many. We need one. So he harmonizes them. He omits any contradictory information. Um, and so for me, that indicates that these texts, um, they might have been viewed as authoritative, but they weren't thought to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um and so, okay, maybe you chalk that up to the process. Um, then we start getting to where, like, we have all of these different church fathers that there's a cool chart, and maybe if I remember, I'll put it on uh, Instagram and Twitter. But, um, you know, finding out which text some of these patristics thought were authoritative yeah. based off of their allusions to them. Um, and then by the 300s, we're starting to get really full lists. But, I mean, really, we have according to this list, one, two, like three church fathers of 15 that go for all of them. Like mm. there's there's debate. I mean, I'll, again, some of it is accidents mm-hmm. of history. We don't have, sure. maybe we don't have everything Clement of Rome wrote. Right. Um, but what he did write, he cites these. Hmm. Um, and so, and some of that was based around debates around, we don't like how so-and-so is using it. So mm-hmm. we're going to make it, stricter we're going to put some borders around it or we're going to dismiss that text altogether um and i think it's also important to note that these texts got chosen this list uh that that i have here uh it is it is all men and there are (laughs) lots of texts um from the early church from the first and second century that center around women specifically mary magdalene Mm um and lo and behold all of these men don't find her contribution valuable. So go back and listen to our Mary Magdalene episode if you haven't to, to get a little bit more of a sense of um, who she really was and the contribution she really did make to the early church. So we've got men, only men. I can't stress that enough. Just choosing which men. texts get to be authoritative in churches of men and women. And it is not as if there weren't texts that didn't about highly value women and their contributions those texts were intentionally excluded Mm -hmm. from these canons. And it is not because they weren't being circulated. The fact that manuscripts made it through the Middle Ages on some of this is evidence that they did. They were circulated. They were circulated. They were popular. Mm -hmm. They just weren't deemed authoritative by the guys in In charge. charge. Um, So I think that that's really important is knowing how it came about. And so can we broaden our understanding of what's authoritative and what's not and maybe include some of these second century texts mm-hmm. that have liberating figures for women and people of color that ha- were I mean the people of color question wasn't that wasn't really a construct in the ancient world in the same no, way that yeah. it is today mm-hmm. um, but women for sure um, are there can they be authoritative in churches to this day there are texts that I mean, even up to the Reformation. I mean, Catholic Bibles have different texts than Protestant Bibles, yep, yep. in part because the Reformation decided they didn't like some of those books. Mm-hmm. A couple of guys decided they <laughs> didn't like some of these books, and they were like, I want them out. And some of them, they didn't get their way. Luther didn't want James in there. Uh, he thought it was too works-based. Mm-hmm. He didn't get his way, um, which personally I think is a good thing. James has some really good calls to action. Yeah. Um, but that question of what's authoritative and what's not was still being was still up for debate by the time of the reformation and it's still up for debate by 
people. <laughs> like yeah, it's not yeah. like there are a couple of angels duking it out about which texts we get <laughs> where you might could argue that. It's guys, it's people being like, eh, I don't like it. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't fit with my particular worldview. Yeah. Um, which leads me to another point that maybe you ha- maybe it's just too important to you. You cannot give up inerrancy of scripture. Mm-hmm. You cannot give up infallibility. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think are related to issues of authority around the text. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Jude, the book of Jude, mm-hmm. uh, which those of you who hold to inerrancy, when was the last time you read it? Just throwing that out there because we all have a canon within the canon of yep. texts that are authoritative for us. Right. Find something in Jude that is meaningful for your life. Tell me about it because I, <laughs> I don't believe it. Um, <laughs> I've read it. Uh, no. Uh, but Jude relies heavily on some of the Enochic literature for yep. its imagery. So is the Enoch literature now authoritative scripture Yeah. because it's the source material for one of the books that you've decided is? And if that's the case, why isn't it in the canon? Is it also infallible? Um, questions of language. So Greek and Hebrew, yeah. Aramaic, is it only infallible in those languages? Yeah. Because once you get to translations, how many English translations are on your bookshelf? Those are decisions. People are making decisions about words that are that are complicated. For This is one that I go to a lot in um, New Testament, the word for slave is doulos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gets translated in English a lot as servant. Mm-hmm. And that is some straight on whitewashing. Yep. It, is in, it is changing the way that we connotate that word. Yep. Instead of thinking of, you know, of, uh, slavery is such a complicated topic. Oh, I yeah. don't want to just minimize it down to forced labor. That is a huge aspect of it. But, um, this denigrating mm-hmm. social death of the slave is masked in, with the word servant where people think somebody who's maybe getting paid or is doing this voluntarily. or I mean, there are different mm-hmm. denotations of this word, and there are definitely different connotations. And so that's a choice. Yeah. So is it authoritative or inerrant to say servant or to say slave mm-hmm. or to say doulos? And if that's the case, then none of our translations are inerrant. Yeah. Yep. Only the original languages, which means that only a handful of people have access to yeah. these texts in any meaning. I mean, I've studied ad- up to advanced Greek, and I'm not good enough to sit down and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> without hours of time and yeah. all the resources. So that becomes a really elitist group. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, thinking about that, and then if you want to say only English, well, then what about all the other languages that's translated into the King James Version is good enough for me. It's good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for me. Um, so there's, it really gets really complicated when you want to like push, push that inerrancy of like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is interesting. Um, uh, every English or non-Arabic version of the Quran is very clearly titled a translation of the Quran. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so Muslims have this notion that the only true authoritative version of the Quran is in Arabic. So yeah. they've they've answered that question yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Um, and that's a question that I think a lot of churches don't ask, is mm-hmm. what do I mean, which texts actually are inerrant? Is it my English translation where 15 people sat in a room and made some choices? Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody who has done translation, there are choices <laughs> that so you have to make. So many choices. In Hebrew especially. It's ridiculous. There are so many choices that have to be made by scholars in these areas. Um, 
for you to have an English version of the Bible. And so to say the Bible's inerrant, is that to say these translators are inerrant? Because we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can show you the grades that I got in advanced <laughs> Greek. I am not inerrant. Um, and then finally, noting that inerrancy of Scripture is not inerrancy of interpretation. Yeah. So even if, even if you need to hold to inerrancy of Scripture, there is no plain reading of a text. Mm-hmm. There is a reading that might be plain to you and a reading that might be plain to me. Mm-hmm. But that is not the same thing as the plain sense of the text. Right. Um, and I'm not talking about things like Jesus went into Jerusalem. <laughs> like That's fairly straightforward. That's fairly straightforward. But things like, um, trying to think of a good example of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Who are who you? Are your, who are you and who are your neighbors and what does love mean? Mm-hmm. Like those are all very conditional for every single one of us. And so this... We are not inherent in inerrant people reading the Bible. We are bringing all kinds of crap with us mm-hmm. to the text. Every single one of us, all of our trauma, all of our joys, all of our education, all of our non-education, all of our biases, all of our privilege, all of our dispossession, all of it is coming with us to these texts and informing our engagement. So even if you want to argue these scriptures are inerrant and you want to hold on to that. You aren't, <laughs> yeah. and you are the one reading it, and you are the one who's making meaning of it for your life. Um, and so that's why I think it's important for all people to mm-hmm. listen to others' views, listen to others' interpretations, not shut them out because they're different, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say there aren't bad readings. There are absolutely terrible readings. Roy oh, yeah. Moore comparing himself to Jesus because <laughs> nobody wanted him to run for Senate when they found out he was a predator. That is a bad reading. It's a reading, but it is a bad reading it's bad. of the Bible. Um, but, you know, Africana studies are different, and maybe I can't relate because mm-hmm. I don't share those experiences. That does not make their readings invalid or not worth hearing or listening to. Right. Um, which I think the inerrancy debate sometimes leads to shutting out other voices mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, to bring it full circle. So those are some of mm-hmm. my my thinkings around inerrancy and that it's, it's really complicated for me. Um, we talked about this before mm-hmm. our, our friend, Margaret, um, also in the PhD program with us in Hebrew Bible. Um, she and I were talking about this earlier and she said, one of the things that was helpful for her that she'd heard a, a way to think about this is not inerrancy. Doesn't mean everything that's in there is right. Mm-hmm. It's more everything that's in there should be in there. Mm-hmm. There's something that can be gleaned from everything that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's useful. Maybe because some of it's bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> some of it's real. The Sotal ritual is bad. Is bad. But maybe what we learn from that is we don't make women drink weird dirt potions. <laughs> while they're pregnant. While they're pregnant or not pregnant. Yeah, or just in general. <laughs> just in general. Maybe women shouldn't have to drink weird dirt potions because their husbands are suspicious. Um, so that's all. Yeah, I think related to what you said, too, I think that a lot of this brings up the discussion of objective versus subjective. Mm-hmm. And I think for a long time, I went really hard onto the subjective. You know, like you said, we bring our biases, we are located, we are in a context, so we can only be subjective. And I think a lot of people, again, from that impulse of security, want 
inerrancy, this objective thing outside of themselves, ordained by God. It's this thing that can't be messed up. Mm -hmm. So we have this pure access route to what we should do and believe. Um, But I think the way I started describing it um, for myself and to other people when I'm thinking about this is that I think, um, I feel like I heard this at some point in our program uh, from some professor, but I can't remember who or in what context, but critical distance. Um, Critical distance is a really useful spatial metaphor to think about the ways in which uh, we need to operate when we're trying to study something, we're trying to understand something. So you need to be near something, but to not be enmeshed with it and be so close you can't see it. Like think of looking at a tree. If you stand with your nose up to the tree's bark, you can't see the tree. You can see one part of it, but you can't see it very well. But if you stand back far enough at critical distance, you can see the tree. But then that also raises the question of where are you standing in relation to the tree? And what do you know about trees? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know it's a tree, but <laughs> can't, is it a Christmas tree? That's the only other. That's I know trees and Christmas trees. <laughs> Those are the two categories the, of trees that I'm familiar that's with. That's the only two types of trees. <laughs> uh, so, But with critical distance then, I think that becomes a useful way of understanding our relationship. So if we use that in terms of inerrancy or in terms of just how we read the Bible, if I maintain a critical distance from the text... I am recognizing that I'm standing in a certain position, but I'm also trying to stand at a distance that I can still try and understand something while recognizing there's a lot at play that's going on between all of it rather than, oh, it's just subjective and it's only my experience and it's just me and my own little, you know, head world that's engaging with what this is saying or it's objective and it can't be wrong and there's no way to disprove it. And I think inerrancy often flies way in the direction of objective, whereas I think yeah. you, if you, again, if you want to hold on to inerrancy and infallibility, I think there are a lot of ways that you can... Uh, reconstitute that meaning mm-hmm. to uh, fit with, I think, a better way and a healthier yeah. way of viewing the Bible. You know, you could say that, um, yeah, uh, along with the rabbinic Jewish view, that uh, it is inerrant in that the faithful witnesses that wrote these texts were not trying to deceive us. Yeah. Uh, they were writing it for a reason, and it is true on that level, mm-hmm. and that it has something for us today. Whether it's actually historically, factually true, that's not the question that's being asked. It's, it is without error in that it is something that we need today to think about or resist or whatever it is. Um, It is, um, you know, can't, or even infallibility, which is even harder because that is not being able to be wrong. Yeah. Um, Which I am. (laughs) So. Infallible. Just so um, you know. I think that also does go back to that passage in 2 Timothy a bit too hard because when I push people on this question, I think a lot of times people go, "Well, what about Second Timothy? You know, all scriptures God breathed." I go, "You're putting a really, really, really big concept from one particular part of the Bible over everything." And if we step back and again talking about canon, we're realizing that these texts come from different writers and different places and different times. I don't know. Four different circumstances. You're taking one yeah. letter from the New Testament, one part of it, and saying, now this is a universal concept that now applies to the whole, which I'm not comfortable with because yeah. I don't think that bears up without yeah. the, again, archaeological record, all the different crazy ways that we have to try and relate to the text. And I think one of the things, just I'll just mention briefly, is for people that I know, the communities that I grew up in with people claiming sort of an inerrancy and infallibility, this objectivity, 
the way that they read scripture isn't objective, it's subjective. Mm-hmm. And there's there's something to that that's really powerful, I think, because, you know, I've sat in on Bible studies where, you know, you read a psalm and you just kind of open it up. So, you know, what, is this, what does this mean to you? That is not an inerrant uh, no. process because there should be a plain sense that is applicable to all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with that understanding. Right. But whenever, you know, somebody comes in and is like, you know, this really speaks to me because of my, my husband and I, our marriage is in trouble, or this really speaks to me because I just lost a child, or this really speaks to me. I mean, those are subjective circumstances informing mm-hmm. the meaning that they're making of the text. Yep. And that flies in the face in so many ways of an understanding of inerrancy, which would be in my traditional understanding, here's here's the reading, one size fits all, yeah, which is not true. Yeah. And so I think we got really passionate about this one. We did. I got a little preachy. Yeah. So it's okay. You're welcome, world. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I think uh, it's definitely something that I wanted to talk about, yeah. and it's something that's worthwhile because. Uh, the way you read the Bible really shapes how you view the world around you. And I don't think a lot of people take the time to realize that the way the world around them functions is also what's, uh, it's, it's a force on them on how they read the Bible too. And inerrancy kind of tries to cut off those channels. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing too, like I I was going to say this at the beginning and I forgot that Inerrancy is a really, really recent thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the real big push was in the '70s with the Chicago statement that came out um, with the uh, um, the statement about like basically most of what people think about inerrancy today goes back to that statement. I can't quote that statement. I don't even know what that's everything fine. says in there. But that's inerrant. So. Um, that's where... I wish there was a typo in it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> this better not have been edited at all. Perfect the first time. No, but really, like, 18th, 19th century was really when concerns about did the text have mm-hmm. errors or not. So, I mean, we're talking a really long time, you know, almost a couple thousand years before this really yeah. becomes a huge issue that it is today, yeah. or at least a And I'm sure some of it issue. is tied up with the fact that with the printing press, I mean, that changed the way yes. that people interacted with texts and with story and with their scriptures because prior to that it was being handwritten and you weren't reading it because you couldn't read. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And maybe even the scribes who were processing it couldn't read what they were writing. They could just recreate the letters. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of these old manuscripts, there are sidebars and interpolations, so additions within the text. So there's an argument that in whichever one of the Pauline letters, there's an interjection of like women should shush or something uh-huh. like that, that that's a later interpolation because one of the later scribes transferring, you know, mm-hmm. copying the text was like, Paul was wrong. Women need to hush. <laughs> and so there's an argument for that. And yeah. there's evidence in other places that that has occurred. Um, it's doesn't occur all all over the place. That's mm-hmm. I think for a while, so scholars whenever they saw something, they were like, oh, "I don't like this." I'm going to say it wasn't Paul. Um, <laughs> I mean, but they're doing the same thing. Yeah, Scholar, yeah, we're yeah. doing the same thing of, yeah. of doing some of that. Um, we just hide behind some critical apparatus sometimes. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's really important too. That I think the printing press changed the way we interact with texts, and then. I mean, I'm no historian, but I feel like friggin' the Civil War did a number on this country. The yeah. more I'm learning about it, and like things that we want to hold on to as being truth and self-evident and obvious, um, are really, really, really rooted 
in the Western world. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I I mean, I can't speak to, you know, Europe, Western Europe, but the United States for sure. Like we are, we do not like to be wrong. Nope. Um, And so the things that we tell people about us and about our country and our history can't be wrong. And things that we tell people about our God can't be wrong. Um, So there's, I think there's definitely some of that. And some of that I think is just the civil war from the things that I've Mm -hmm. read. It's Mm -hmm. just, it did a bigger number than I gave it credit for when Mm -hmm. I had to take the class in high school. Mm. So anyway, those are some final thoughts of things that might be worth pursuing and thinking about is, is this, uh, did this come rise up in the United States particularly Mm. um, and what was the context for some of that and or is this more of a western phenomenon Um, do we see some of this in the the non-western world Mm -hmm. um, that might have more oral cultures or not so text bound as we Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. yeah so I don't know it'd be interesting to think about those things but yeah um Let's wrap this up. Um, so we are on lots of different Everything now. platforms now. iHeartRadio finally put us up. Yes. Um, thanks, iHeartRadio. Thanks, iHeartRadio. We heart you. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I hate myself for that, just so all y'all know. <laughs> you don't have to hate me. <laughs> I do. I, I'll do it for you. Um, yeah, so rate, review, subscribe. If you're going to rate us, I'm not interested in your three-star rating. We got one, and I was like, what's the... Why be, why be like, meh? <laughs> why waste your time? Like, if you're passionate enough to rate us, I feel like it should be a one or a five. Yeah, maybe a two. <laughs> maybe a four. But a three is just like, I don't really care one way or another, but I'm going to spend some time pushing a button. Like, I don't know. That just struck me as so odd. Yeah. Um, but that really helps the algorithms. People see us, um, share us on any of the socials that you're on. Um it would be really nice to to reach a bigger audience. Um, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, if you've got suggestions for passages. Um, Zach and I are both kind of in the in the trenches with dissertations right now, so um, hopefully, eventually, we can move to more frequent mm-hmm. episodes of now every other week. So, don't take it personally if we don't get to the text you want just yet. Um, we're still <laughs> working out how all this is going to look, but uh, we're excited about it. And thanks for listening. It's we're enjoying. It's a lot of fun. So, yeah. um, yeah. See you next time. Amen and Selah.